God only established three major institutions on the earth. The family, civil government, and the local church. As such, God put a great deal of importance on them, and each of them serves a specific purpose, for which I'm very grateful. But today, I would like to spend some time teaching about the local church. The local church was and still is commissioned by God to carry out His purposes. Did you catch that? His purposes. I would like to draw your attention to this text of Scripture that I believe will speak much for itself, though I'll point out some key qualities that should still be important to us today. I love the church of Jesus Christ. No bones about it. I love the church. From the time I was four or five years old, I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've missed the Sunday service. Not because I was forced to go. I looked forward to it. I loved being at church. I still love being at church. I still love being around God's people who is the church. I look forward to it. And if I had another lifetime to live all over again, I would still choose to be part of the church. In accordance to God's will, I would still serve the church as a pastor should He lead me in another lifetime. Some of my fondest childhood memories revolve around the church and the activities that it sponsored. I can remember as a four-year-old kid... This guy knocking on our door of our apartment building six Saturdays in a row. Hey, we have a bus route coming through this area and we'd love to take your children to church. But through that ministry, God reacquainted our entire family back to the church. It was through that ministry that I gave my life to Christ, that my brothers and sisters gave their life to Christ. It was that through that ministry that my dad, who had grown up in a very godly home, walked away from when he was in the service and came back to the church and began to serve. It was through that ministry that God got a hold of my mom's heart as a, when I was in 8th grade and I was able to see my mom come to the saving knowledge of, and faith in Jesus Christ. I love the church. Um, I can remember the stories that I learned as a kid. I'll never forget some of them. I can remember... Uh, one of the ladies in the church making unleavened bread in, in our little classroom as a little kid and, and tearing off pieces of bread and teaching us what communion is all about. I can remember having a little stage that was on the front of the class, in the front of one of the classroom uh, stages. And I can remember the story of Naaman going down into the, to the river and coming up muddy and, and the lady taking a bucket of mud and putting it all over the legs. And I, I'll never forget that. Those stories that were imprinted on my heart. I'll never forget the story of Jonah and, and, and every childhood story that, that we ever learned in, in, in elementary Sunday school. I'll never forget my youth pastor. Um, my youth pastor was the one who uh, oftentimes in, in our house, our family invented dysfunctional. Um, it was crazy. My dad lived his, my whole, half of my elementary years and my junior high years in the hospital. My youth pastor was a man who came around, and when I would start griping and complaining, he'd say, Buck up, Todd. Life ain't supposed to be easy. Get over it. And I'm like, man, I thought you were supposed to love on your youth. <laughs> he did. But it was a church that God used to speak to my heart and to challenge my heart to do what was right. I can remember my youth pastor on many Saturdays, as a, as a church that was really big into the bus routes in the, in the, in the 80s and 90s, we had 12 buses in our church parking lot. Every Saturday, one of them needed some major attention. Every Saturday, my youth pastor would pick me up, and we would crawl underneath one of those buses and do something. 
I have no idea what I was doing. He'd say, hand me this, hand me that, do this, do that. My youth pastor was an amazing mechanic. I watched that guy take apart half a motor on the side of a highway on the way to camp one year and put it back together. He was amazing. But I remember not only that, I remember the father-son outings. The days that we would go to, to such and such a lake and spend the night in the camps. And, and we would go fishing throughout the day. And, and I can remember the guys that the church would have come in and share devotions for us for the weekend while we were away. I can remember the church work days. I never missed one. Ever. I loved them. I was there as much as the work days as I was as the fun youth activities. Church was my life. Not because I was forced, but because I loved it. I remember as a, as, as a, as a teenager mowing the churchyard. I can remember as a teenager planting bushes. I can remember as a teenager painting the buses. I can remember one night as a teenager, as a junior, we had this problem with somebody shooting paint guns at our church, at our church buses. We'd get them back. No big deal. We sat up there. We pulled the ladder next to the church building. We crawled up on the roof, pulled the ladder up, and stayed there all night, like three Friday nights in a row. Never did catch them. <laughs> but we was ready. <laughs> we were going to shoot paint guns back. I mean, we were having fun. We were looking forward to it. Everything happened around the church when I was a kid growing up. The fellowship, the friendships. Everything happened around the church. The encouragement and support. Um, was on another whole level because of our family dynamic. Because dad was in the hospital. My dad had 16 back operations. He had toe amputations that led to foot amputations that led to leg amputations. He had five bypass heart surgery. He had eyes. My dad was always in the hospital. He knew everybody on a first name basis there in Unity Hospital. But because of that, our church family was wonderful. One of them was stopping by, sending cards all the time. They acted like the church was supposed to act. I love the church. Even with its sinful idiosyncrasies. With the selfishness that takes place. I do believe, however, that the church, despite all of its human influences, many key qualities of the early church were found in our church growing up. And I believe as we read through Acts 2, you might be thinking, what were those qualities that were there? Well, let's just take a moment this morning and look at those. But let me say before we go much further this morning, who specifically is the church? I've talked for a few moments about what took place at what we would call, quote-unquote, the church. We realized that that was just a building where the church gathered. And it was that church that really impressed upon my heart the need to walk with God. But most definitively, the church is you and I. True believers who in obedience to God's Word observe the ordinances, baptism, and communion and have joyously banded together carry out God's purposes. In Acts chapter 14, verse 27, I love this verse. I want to just take a moment and read this very quickly. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 primarily. But I want to just read this quick verse in Acts 14 and verse 27. It says this, After they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported any, everything God had done with them and that He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a considerable time with the disciples. They gathered the church. They didn't pick up a building and go set it somewhere. The church was a movable entity. It was a body of baptized believers who were carrying out their, 
God-given purposes, walking in obedience to fulfill God's commands on this earth. So if we as a collective body of believers, a local church, are interested in God's blessing, we must seek to instill these qualities in our lives both individually and collectively. So what are these qualities? Well, we're going to look at those just very briefly this morning. I want to begin this morning by reading Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. It says, Those who accepted His message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. I believe as we go down through this passage, you're going to find at least six qualities that were exhibited in the church that because they were there, God blessed the church. I want God's blessing in the church. Amen? I want this to be a place that God says, I want to bless. But I don't believe that God's going to bless if we're walking in a disobedience. Or God's not going to bless if we don't have these things that are very basic to a Bible-believing, practicing church. So what are they? Number one, we see the very first thing in, in verse 41. It says, so those who accepted His message were baptized. The first quality here that we see is that they accepted the message. They accepted the Word of God. This was a body of believers that accepted what was being taught. And you cannot truly be a part of the church until you accept His message. There are a lot of people in a lot of states and a lot of countries around the world who are gathering together under the name church who are not believing His Word. It's one thing to say, I believe, and it's another thing to accept it uh, and say, I'm, I accept it to the point that I'm going to let it change my life and change the course of my life and how I live my life. So there's a lot of people that don't truly accept His Word. And do you know that not everyone accepts the message that shows up at church? It's amazing. Uh, and during the time of our church plant, there were many times that... Uh, um, I, I had to work a second or third job, and one of them I worked at a, at a local pharmacy. And inside this uh, local pharmacy, I would have people from other churches in the area come in, and the things that they would buy as I was behind the register, I can't say, oh my goodness, you go to church, I can't sell you that. I was an employee of a business. But it blew my mind how many things that people would buy that no Christian ought to ever touch. How do I know that? Because God's Word says there are certain things that are sinful and man ought not to be part of it. And yet they would buy it week after week after week. And it tells me this, not everybody accepts His Word. And they still go to church. And churches are filled full of people who refuse to implement God's Word into their life. Until you make that decision to accept God's Word in its entirety, you will never know the blessings of God. The Word of God is often confronting. Do you ever think about that? It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. 
And it is a judge of the ideas and thoughts of the heart. It makes you think. When we spend time in God's Word, and the Holy Spirit uses that Word, and it begins to penetrate our heart, it is confronting. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking. Does anyone enjoy being rebuked? I think I'll wake up this morning. Sounds like a great day. It looks like a great day for somebody to yell at me about something I'm doing wrong. Woo! Let it come. No! We don't look forward to that. But God's Word does that in our life if we let the Holy Spirit work through it. For teaching, for rebuking, for correcting. It corrects us when we are going the wrong direction. And it is able to equip us for every good work. Trains us in righteousness, equips us to be the perfect man of God. And perfect does not mean perfect as in sinless. It means mature. If we want to come to maturity, we have got to let God's Word work in our hearts and our lives. But the first quality I see of this church in Acts 2 is that they accepted the message. They accepted God's Word. Number two, they obeyed the message. They obeyed what the message said. How do I know that? Once again, verse 41 says, those who accepted His message were baptized. Well, the first step of obedience following true faith in Jesus Christ is baptism by immersion. And can I just say this, and you've heard me say this before, but what is the significance? Significance is, is basically, I stand in the water, I form a cross. I, 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 I align my life with what Christ did for me on the cross. Christ died on the cross. He went under the water. Came up out of the water as a signifying of His resurrection from the death. And then He walked into His life. But here's the thing. In baptism, in baptism, I am saying no to the old life and yes to the new life. I put everything that was associated with my life before Christ under. I've put it to death. I've mortified the deeds of the flesh. I've, I've killed it. It's, it's gone. And now I walk in newness of life. And it's the first step of obedience. It says to God, I want to walk in obedience. And can I say this? There are many people sitting in churches across America that say, well, I was baptized as an infant. And can I say from Scripture, there is no scriptural support for the validity of infant baptism. Not one. It's not in there. You can't find it. In fact, every instance of Scripture that you, in scripture that you will find regarding baptism says that basically they believed and then were baptized. Which negates infant baptism because of this reason. Babies don't understand or believe in Jesus Christ yet. But once they grow to understand and they place their faith and trust in Christ, then after belief follows baptism. And can I say this? By pouring water over an infant's head or sprinkling water over over a baby's head, you can't picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a visible sign. It is an outward sign of what has taken place inwardly. And here's the, here's the deal from Scripture. They accepted the message, and then they walked in obedience in baptism. You say, well, what if I was uh, baptized as a kid and then I got saved later? What does Scripture say? There's a chance that you should be rebaptized biblically, scripturally, by immersion. Many believers still have not followed the Lord in this area and, are forf- and they forfeit the blessings of God. 
How do I know that you forfeit blessings by not doing this? Well, James chapter 4, verse 17 says, so it, is, so it is a sin for the person who knows to do good and chooses not to do it. If you know that you should do something and you don't do it, it is sin. And God says in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So I can ask God for all the blessings that the world can offer. And God's saying, listen, I'm not going to honor you. You're still walking in sin. And you choose not to deal with it. But we know from Scripture is that they accepted the message and then they were baptized. They walked in obedience. And we know that God's Word teaches us that obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings destruction. And we see that no clearer no, there's no clear passage on that than Luke chapter 6, verses 47 through 49. Two foundations. Two people who built a house. One built it on the sand, one built it upon the rock. And this one and this one heard the same message, according to God's word. They both heard the, the commands. One chose to not do what he was told, the other one chose to do what he was told. The one who chose not to is like a man who hears, doesn't do, and when the storms come, the house destroys is destroyed by the storm. This man, he hears, he does, and when the storms come, so to speak, it stands firm. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings destruction. Ultimately, it will happen in our lives. But I find it amazing how choosy or selective we can be when it comes to the areas of obedience in God's Word. I mean, this one's okay. It's not so bad because I can understand it. And it's really not a personal issue, so I can follow that one. But this one, ooh, this one's a little bit harder. I mean, this one might require me to give up my money. This one might require me to give up my time. This one might require me to, you know, you know, just do some things that I'm not comfortable with because I'm really shy or I'm not that talented or I'm not that skilled. But this over here, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with this, so I'll do that. But this one, no, I'm not going to do that one. We can become very selective and choosy concerning our obedience to God. Well, number three. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. I love this thing found in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Well, first of all, the word devoted has the idea of dedicated or applied. In other words, they were devoted. They were dedicated. They applied themselves to the apostles' truth. And the apostles' teaching is simply the truth of Jesus' teaching. In other words, they were concerned about truth. I wonder if we're truly concerned about truth today. I think I see throughout our culture that truth is becoming relevant to the person's opinions, thoughts, biases, in other words, there is no moral absolutes anymore. There are no absolutes anymore. And we have this idea that, hey, truth is what I think it is. You may think it means this, but I think it means this, so that's okay. It would just agree to disagree. Truth does not change. Right? Truth does not change. They were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The very things that Jesus Christ taught them, they were committed to that. And in doing so, we must know the truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 says, Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceitfulness. 
1 John 4, 1 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to determine if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do we know what truth is? I can't tell you how many times somebody will come up to me and say, Hey, Pastor, I listened to so-and-so on the radio the other day. And man, was he good. Folks, we need to try the spirits to see if they be of God. I have people tell me all the time, I watch so-and-so on Man, she just... Man, she just hammers it away. And I'm just thinking, wow, do we know the Scripture? What does God's Word say? Do we know the truth? Because there are plenty of people, and just because they're on TV, just because they've authored a book, just because they got a radio slot, does not mean that they're speaking truth. Go to Walmart. On any given day, there are probably 15 titles of different authors And some of them couldn't be further from the truth. Folks, we need to make sure that we know the truth. They followed and were committed to the apostles' teaching. They are committed to the message that Jesus Christ gave. And we need to make sure that we are committed to the same thing if we want God's blessing. Not only that, fellowship. A time of encouragement and accountability. It says there in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship. They were committed about to fellowship with other believers. And we know that according to 1 John 1.3, it says, truly our fellowship is with who? Jesus Christ. I know we as Baptists, we come together and we eat and we say that's fellowship. But truly, fellowship revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is not in the picture, you're not having true biblical fellowship. You may have a time of refreshment, but not truly fellowship. I want to keep your fingers there just for a second there and turn over to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 13 says this. It says, But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. We're to encourage one another while we have the opportunity to do that. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 it says this, not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Talking about the day of Christ. We are to commit, be committed to one another. If we truly know Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we are truly one of His children, we ought to be committed to coming together all the more as we see the end times approaching. And friend, I don't know about you, but I don't know when that day is coming. I don't know. Throughout history, there have been dozens and literally dozens of people who have set dates and times as to when the Son of Man may come. And guess what? Every one of them have been wrong. We don't know when Christ is going to come. But we have to believe that the time is drawing near. And whatever that time is, I'm going to stay faithful to the end. Faithful and committed, not only to God, but to His people, to His body of believers. We want to stay committed And number two, we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when Christ may call us home. We want to stay faithfully committed to the end. But not only that, said also to the breaking of bread or communion. As they faithfully committed themselves to the truth found in Acts 2.42, they also stayed committed not only to fellowship, but to communion. In other words, what is communion? It's a time of reflection. 
is a time of looking back to what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. The very reason why He shed His blood, that we might have forgiveness of sins. We are to often think about that. I know we as a church, we try to do that monthly. But it's not the only time you can do it. It's not the only time you should do it, probably. We have opportunities. We need to take those opportunities to reflect on what Jesus Christ has done for us. But not only that, they said prayers. A time for communication and relationship with Jesus Christ. With God, our Heavenly Father. Prayers. It's an amazing thing to consider that the church gave themselves to prayer. I think one of the highlights of these last few months was our men's prayer night. As we prayed from 8 o'clock to midnight and did teaching on prayer and spent some time in prayer. To me, that was one of the highlights of the last several months. We need to do it more often as a body. We need to pray together. Sometimes we're, we're real quick to, to bring up the physical needs, but as I say often, our physical needs are not our greatest needs. Right? We understand that? The greatest needs we have are spiritual. That we will walk in obedience and fellowship to God. Number four. Actually, before I move on, if you look at verse 43... As they began to do these things, as they were beginning to accept the message, as they began to be obedient and follow the Lord in, in, in baptism, as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, you find out in verse 43 that God was beginning to bless this body. It says, Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. God was beginning to bless their obedience. And can I just say, God's not going to bless us if we're not walking in obedience as a body. Number four. I see this in verse 44. It says, Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. Number four, they were unified. They were together. When a church works together, so much more is accomplished. I wonder how often ulterior motives, pride, Arrogance slows down what God is wanting to do. I wonder how often that really takes place. Probably a whole lot more than what we, what we think. Do we realize that as a local body, this church does not belong to you and I? It belongs to God, right? It's His body, right? We understand that? It's His. But they held all things in common. They were together. And that's what our job partly to do is to do as pastors, as elders. Ephesians 4, and we're going to talk about this later in this series. But bottom line is God says, I gave some pastors and teachers and, teachers and bishops and evangelists and elders, so to speak. God says, for what? He gets down to the end of that passage and says, so we all come into the unity of the faith. Until we are discipled. Until we're on the same page, so to speak, spiritually. Until we are grounded in God's Word and we're together. And God's Word is clear. There are so many passages that talk about unity. God loves unity. But I can stand up here this morning and say, man, I can think of this person and this person and this person and this person who left the church because they didn't get things done their way. It's not about you. It's not about me. I might be the pastor, but it's not about me getting my way. Because if I have to go into my deacon or elder meeting and say, we're doing this, and all the guys say, oh, Pastor, you probably shouldn't do that. And I say, but we're doing it. I'm the pastor. 
How smart would that be? It'd be ridiculous. We need to work together to fulfill His purposes. It's not about what we as individuals want. It's about what does God want. It's His body. But they were unified. And we see that verse 44. And look at this, verse 45. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. We see number five that they were sacrificial. They had all things common. They were willing to sell their possessions and goods. That goes against our cultural thinking. Anybody agree? Let's have a big garage sale tomorrow. Let's bring everything to the church and just sell it all. You're, you're crazy, Pastor. I know, I am. But wouldn't that totally go against our cultural thinking in 2013? It really does. We live in a day of the American dream. You know, we have a nice house, a car or two. Land, the things we want, so to speak. Why? Because we can. It's America. Even in our rough times, quote-unquote, it's far superior than half the world. They were willing to give up those things, those dreams, to meet the needs of others. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it says this, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own. But instead they held everything in common. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them. Because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This then was then distributed for each person's basic needs. They were willing to give up what they had to meet the needs of others. They were sacrificial. Don't get me wrong with what I'm about to say. It's amazing in every church I've ever been a part of, there have been individuals that I've known personally who have sacrificed greatly. But I wonder how much more would be accomplished if many of us were willing to be sacrificial. Not just so-and-so, because all everyone understands, he really does have money. Or she really does have an inheritance that she can, she can afford to let go of some of it. Let's stop the back talk, the hush undertones, and ask this question. What does God want me to be sacrificial of? What does God want me to do? So often we have this idea that, well, I'll do something more later, when I'm more established, when, I'm, when, when my kids are older, when I don't have a security. The, the what if and, and the whenevers, they never come. What does God want us to do in regards to what they did? God blessed this kind of a church. They were sacrificial. And then number six. I think we see the sixth quality from verse 46. It says, 
Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. They remained focused on what was most important. They remained focused on what was most important. What was that? Well, they went to the temple daily. If I could say this in the year 2013... They were faithful to the church. They were faithful to worship. They were faithful to gathering together. Not when it's just convenient. They were faithful all the time. To communion, the breaking of bread, as we said, fellowship around the table, they ate together. I find it amazing how the same people always slip out during the fellowships. Our fifth Sunday fellowships or when there's a pitch-in. Take the time to fellowship and worship God together. To talk about what Jesus is doing in your life. Take the time to encourage one another. I've learned a long time ago, things happen behind closed doors that the average person never knows about. you understand that? Things happen behind closed doors that no one else knows about. What am I saying? People come to church and they put their happy-go-lucky smile on and how you doing? Pat answer... Fine, great, wonderful. When inside they're hurting and struggling and they need somebody to encourage them. And maybe you're that person. That's what the church is there for. One of the reasons is that we might encourage one another. Another one that we don't talk about though is accountability. I don't want to call out so-and-so sin because then they're all, all the more looking back at me. They might see where my flaws are, Right? That happens too. But are we willing to let them? That means you have to be vulnerable. Right? But I challenge us to walk the life that God's called us to. But we don't do it because we don't want to, you know, we don't be that holy roller in the goody two shoe that's going to call them down on it. God's called you to it. You know what happens? We go to the elder or we go to the pastor. Did you know what so and so is doing? No, I didn't, but since you knew about it, why aren't you dealing with it? Well, that's a pastor's job. No, it's not. It's all of our job to hold our brothers and sisters accountable. Are we willing to do it? Hey, I care enough for you. Hey, I see this in your life. Hey, I love you enough. Hey, is, is there an issue I can help you with? Oh, I ain't going to do that, pastor. No, uh, no. That's a pastor's job. No, it's your job. But they fellowship together around the table. They praise God. And they fellowship with God's people. But I like what it says there in verse 46. Every, what? Week? Every day they did these things. Well, say, Pastor, that was a different lifestyle. It was a different day then. That was in biblical times. They didn't have a a nine-to-five job. We can justify, rationalize, excuse it, but they were faithful. They were faithful. And God honored it. God blessed it. And in conclusion, look at verse 47. They ate their food with joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. In other words... I have to somehow believe that reading between the lines, 
there were people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I think we can come to that conclusion, right? Right? Because they were obedient. And they were out and about. You see, this is a church facility. It houses the church. These are just walls, mortar, mix, cement, metal, stuff. You're the church. And the church goes out into the community. The church goes to work. The church talks to the neighbor across the fence. The church goes to the grocery store. The church goes to get gas. The church goes out and about. And we need to be the church. You know, it's one amazing thing that God's Word tells us in Matthew 16, 18, is that the gates of hell would not prevail against what? His church. I'm thankful for that. Because I realize in my immaturity at times, I'm pretty selfish. I want what I want. And I can make it about me if I want to. But that was never God's intention. God wants us to fulfill His purposes. And we're going to talk about those purposes in the upcoming weeks. What does God want to do through us? What does God want to accomplish in our life? I don't know about you, but it's really easy to look at the past. Is it not? It's easy to say, well, we used to run 200 back in the... And I say, who cares? Seriously, you can't live in the past. Praise God for them and move on. You can't live back there. Those days are gone. What does God want to do today? What does God want to do through you today? Not 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 15 years ago. What does God want to do in your life today through the local church? I say, boy, this is a tough area to build a church in. Yeah, it is. And we keep moving. We can't sit still. I believe as we look through this passage... You see these qualities. They accepted the message. They obeyed the message. They, voted, they devoted themselves to what they were told to do. They were unified. They were sacrificial. And they focused on what was most important. And as we do that, and as we watch God do it then, I believe He'll do it again. He will bless. But apart from obedience, there will be no blessing. We can't expect that. Blessing follows obedience. No other way. So I challenge all of us, myself included, let's be obedient. Let's put these qualities that were in the early church into our church. Let's accept God's Word. Let's devote ourselves to be obedient to it. Devote ourselves to it. Let's be unified. Let's be sacrificial. And let's be focused on what's most important and see if God would bless us. Let's pray.